I cannot really even fathom believe that we were here. Um, feels like we just launched like not that long ago, and um, but as of yesterday, yesterday was our actual anniversary. Um, we launched Impact Church five years ago at Mountain View Middle School, and we've come a long way since then. We've seen so many different people come and go um, over those years. Um, a lot of things have changed. Location has changed. It's changed three times. Uh, staff has changed. My hair has gotten grayer over the years. It's not your fault. It's my kid's fault. My hair is gray. Um, but we as a church have stayed the same. And Impact Church, our goal is to be a church that makes a difference. And I truly believe that we have done that the past five years. And I'm not just saying that. I really mean it. As a church, I believe we have made a difference in this community. Uh, I truly believe that this community is a little better because we are here. And I don't say that to be arrogant. I say it because I truly believe that it's true. So this week, I found some numbers to really show some of the impact we've made here and outside of this building, um, just to let you guys know what's happened the past five years. The past five years, we have had 265 services, 265 services. That does not count Mount Manor services, uh, so that could actually be 275, 285 uh, services. And in those services, you all have drank 5,350 cups of coffee, okay? That's the number we found. You guys drink. And in fact, today we got new coffee um, that now is the coffee that you drink. So every time you drink a cup of coffee, we can now have it from the, from the Hoffa House, which is an organization we've helped in the past. So every cup you drink is actually making a difference because we are purchasing it from them and supporting sobriety living. So um, drink as much coffee as you want, okay? Um, when it comes to the amount of cores that we have ran, I had Rob do this number for me. In the past five years, we have ran 344,500 feet of cord in five years. That is 65.25 miles worth of cores. That could get us to Frederick and back and still have some left over. We have played 1,060 worship songs, not different ones. We probably played like 40 different ones, but 1,060 worship songs, okay? Setting up on a Sunday morning, we have spent 815 hours setting up just on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about anything outside of it, just Sunday morning, 815 hours. We have checked in. Impact Kids check-ins have been 2,144 kids have been checked in. Our attendance in the past five years, 17,624 people have walked in to this building. Service outside of this building, not so the hours we've spent serving outside of the building, is 1,494, which is actually double the amount that we've spent in here, which I love that stat. That means we've done more out there than we've done in here. We have given away, this is a hard number to find, so it's kind of a little bit of an estimate, but between Food Pantry, between Mountain Manor, all the organizations we've helped in the past, Angel Tree, we've given away over 10,000 different items. And then today, we have done our 99th baptism today. So, here's what that means. If you're interested in getting baptized, you could be 100, okay? Just saying. Just saying that. So, we have not always done things the best way we could have. But I know that we have always done things with the heart to live out the mission that God has given us. And because we have done that, God has allowed us the privilege to still be here. When statistically it says that it's very hard for a church plant to survive. Uh, statistically it says 80% of church plants fail within the first five years. And it also says that the church plants that do make it, only one in ten church plants make it over 100 people on a Sunday within those five years. When statistically it wasn't likely, God has allowed us to still be here. And that's why we're celebrating today. We're not celebrating the staff or the leaders or you. We are celebrating the God that had a plan for us all along and the God who has allowed us to still be here and serve. And to all of you, whether this is your first time here, whether you've been coming for a little bit, whether you've been here from the beginning, or whether you used to come and you came back just to celebrate with us today, I truly, as the pastor, want to say thank you. Thank you for attending. Thank you for serving. Thank you for giving. 
Thank you for sacrificing. Thank you for living out the mission to make a difference any way you could. We are not here if it isn't for you all. But like we have been reading throughout this entire series, we should remember and reflect, and today we're celebrating what's happened the past five years, but we cannot stay there. Here's how God says it actually in Isaiah chapter 4, we've been saying this entire series. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do not perceive it. I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That is why we've been saying throughout this entire series, and I really mean it even more today, is that we cannot see a new way when we are focusing on the old way. I truly believe that the best days of Impact Church are not the five years you just saw. I truly believe the best years of Impact Church are ahead of us, are in the future. That God is not done with his church. As long as we continue to live out the new way that he is guiding us, that we will continue to make a difference in this community. And throughout this series, we've been talking about four things. We've been describing who we are as a church. And here's what we've been describing. Week one, which is two weeks ago, we said that we help people know Jesus. Last week, we said that we help others find community. Today, we're talking about how we make a difference. That's our job as a church. And then next week, which is really going to push us towards the future, we're talking about how we care about kingdom growth, not our growth. So today, we're talking about we make a difference. Because here's a temptation that we all need to avoid whether it's personally or as a church. Many of us believe in, in the back of our mind somewhere, near the back of our mind, that if we truly want to make a difference, we need to do more. Like as a church, the only way we can truly make a difference as a church, yeah, we're making a difference, but we need to see some, like a boom in growth. Then we can really make a difference. And if, we, if our attendance rapidly increases, then we'll actually be able to make the true difference. We, we need to do something major that really sticks out or, or yeah, we're making a difference, but we're, we're not truly making the difference that God really wants us to until we're at 200 people or 500 people or 1,000 people. And as long as we continue to grow, we can say we're making a difference. But if I stood here and we had not grown in five years, then how could I say that we had made a difference? That's a temptation that we have. And it's not just as a church. We do it personally too. We think, well, I'm only a blank. I'm only an accountant. I'm only a salesperson. I'm only a college student. What difference can I really make? I only have so much influence in my life. I, I'm not that... I don't have that many likes on, on Facebook or followers on, on Instagram. I, I'm not that good with new people. I'm not that talented. I'm not that smart. It's easy for us to start to compare ourselves to somebody else or to another church and think, yeah, we're making a difference, but not like that church or not like that person. And I want to tell you that we do not want to fall into the comparison trap. That's not what God thinks when he looks at us or when he looks at you. Because here's what making a difference is. We make a difference one person at a time. That's what we're called to do. We make a difference one person at a time. This week, I um, reverse engineered, I don't know if you've ever done this, and I, rec I recommend you do it this week. I reverse engineered how I got to be here at this church. Um, what things had to happen in my life to get me to be the pastor here. And here's what I learned. Before this, I was working at another church plant called Connections Church. I worked there for seven years. While I was there, I was getting my pastor's license, and um, uh, there was a mentor of mine named Ken Balch who saw me, and I took this assessment. I had to take all these assessments for my pastor's license, and one was a church plan assessment. And he came to me and said, hey, you scored very, very high on the church planning assessment. I said, yeah, well, that's because I'm part of a church plant. That's why. And he said, that's not why. That's not why you scored high. And I was like, okay. That was the first time I was like, oh, maybe God has a plan for me in the future to do that. The only reason I was part of that church is because uh, the pastor at the time, Pastor AJ, he was the lead planner. He asked me to do it. If he didn't ask me to do it, I don't know if I would have been a part of it because there was really no reason to believe in me at that point. He wanted me to be the youth pastor. I didn't know what I was doing, so he, but he still asked me, and if he didn't ask me, I don't know if I'm even at that church. I met him at the church I was going to previously, Crossroads Church of the Nazarene. If I didn't go to that church, then I wouldn't have met Pastor AJ, who asked me to be 
the pastor. The only reason I stayed at Crossroads Church Nazarene, my family was looking for a church. The first week we were there, um, they did a special song. For those of you who've been to church, you get the special song. You do all these worship songs, and then one person who can kind of sing comes up and does the special song. We all sit, you know, don't. Okay, so the special song happened, and it was a girl my age who was really pretty. So I told my parents I wanted to go back, okay? That's why. But my parents were looking for a church. We decided to go to that one. The only reason they were looking for a church is because the church we were at prior did not have a student ministry anymore. The attendance declined a lot, so we decided to leave. The attendance declined a lot because the pastor that was there had left. Pastor Paul was his name. The reason why we went to that church is because Pastor Paul had two sons. One was my age, one was my brother's age. And the first Sunday we were there, we met them. We became really close friends, and we found out we both had an interest. And I was like fifth grade at the time. We both really liked WWE wrestling. Specifically, PJ, who was my friend, and I um, liked The Undertaker. So I told my parents I wanted to go back because I met a friend who likes The Undertaker. So I'm here at Impact Church because The Undertaker is a wrestler, is what I'm here to tell you. <laughs> Here's the point. Every person along the way, and you all could do that. You could go back and, and look. We heard Colin's story of, of some people along the way. All along the way, there was people that helped me in my faith, that supported me, that encouraged me, that built me up so that I could have faith and eventually step into the, ministry, the calling I had. And none of those people thought they were making this big difference. None of those people thought they were doing anything major. They were just loving the person God put in front of them. That's what they were doing. And now here I am with all of you because of all the people along the way that helped make a difference. We make a difference one person at a time. Jesus, when he was here, had this big mission. He had to save the world. He had to sacrifice himself so that you and I could have a relationship with God. Yet, in his three years of ministry, he spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with people. When he had a lot of work to do, he would spend time one-on-one -on -one with people. And one of my favorite stories um, that we see is in Luke chapter 8. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, open to Luke chapter 8. In the midst of a crowd, Jesus is about to go do a mission, and he has this interaction with one person. It says this in verse 40, Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So imagine the scene. Jesus is going to this person's house to, to, to heal this, this girl, because People know, have heard about Jesus, he's been healing people, he's been preaching these sermons, and there's a huge crowd that's surrounding him, and he's like in the middle of that crowd trying to get through, people are pressing up against him. Verse 43, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. This woman wouldn't ha would have been at the end of her rope. Bleeding like this wasn't an unfortunate sickness that she had. She was looked at as someone who was cursed because either she was a sinner or someone in her ancestry was a sinner. That's the only reason she was bleeding like she was. This woman would be considered unclean. This woman would have been pushed out of every community she was ever in and pushed out of society. So she hears about this Jesus guy who's healing people, and she's surrounded by all these people. She knows she can't really get to him because there's so many people there. So she thinks, well, if I just touch the edge of his cloak, then maybe that will be enough. She goes and she touches the edge of his cloak. Here's what happens. Verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Here's what Peter says. Everyone's touching you. Like, you're in a crowd, Jesus. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to shows. I was in, I, I liked hardcore music back in the day, so I would get in those pits, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like you get hit and stuff. That's what's happening. Jesus is wandering in, in a, a crowd of people, says, who touched me? And, and 
Jesus like, or Peter's like, everyone has touched you. What do you mean? But he clarifies. This is what he says, verse 46. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Jesus is on his way to heal someone else. Crowds around him. He stops because he knows one person touched him and something happened to that one person. Verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. This is a person who spent her whole life trying to not be noticed. Because when she was noticed for who she was, she was kicked out of wherever she was. But yet, when she realized that with Jesus she could not go unnoticed, she says what happened. Verse 48. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He, do you see how, he, how Jesus identifies this person? A person that the rest of culture would have said is a cursed person, a person that, that is, has no value, should be out of here. Said Jesus says, no, daughter, your faith has healed you. You're not someone to avoid. You're not someone who's cursed. You are a child deserving of love. If we want to make a difference as a church, we need to operate the way Jesus did. And Jesus, throughout the gospel, did three things. Here's what he did, and we see it right here. The first thing he did, it's very simple. First thing he does, he always sees. Step one is to see. If we want to make a difference, we see. We see the way Jesus sees people. Last year, my, my two girls were playing soccer, and they would have practice at the same time. So my, my wife was assistant coaching both of those teams. So I would show up, and um, the first day I, I had Noah with me, and Savannah was practicing, I had Brooklyn. So we're just kind of watching the practice. And then eventually we go to Brooklyn's practice, and Savannah's done. My middle child and Noah's getting restless at this point. So they're like, hey, can we go play in the playground? I said, sure, go ahead and play in the playground. It's fine. I keep going back in and checking in to make sure they're okay. Everything's fine. I'm watching Brooklyn play practice, and all of a sudden I see a parent walking down with a kid. I'm like, oh, that kid's hurt. And I was looking, I'm like, man, that sucked for that kid. And then I went back to practice. Okay. Someone will deal with that. It's not me. And then the kid gets a little closer, and I realize, oh, that's Savannah. That's my daughter. I run up, and I'm like, oh, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. I was like, oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry. She's holding like this. Like, you'll be fine. It was broken. She broke her arm. I was going to say, it'll be fine. But my perspective changed. When it was a stranger's kid, I was like, oh, I feel bad for you. And then I went back to my kid stuff. Once it was my child, everything changed. It's like, oh, that's my child. I need to go do something about it. What if... We saw people the way Jesus saw people. What if, instead of seeing that person that you disagree with politically as your enemy, what if you see them as someone who is using their experience, their circumstances, their understanding, and their desire for a better world to make a political decision, exactly like you do, by the way, and you don't have to agree with them, but they are not your enemy. They could be wrong. You could be wrong. Either of you could be wrong. But we do not allow the polarization of politics to pull us away from the people that God is calling us to love. What if we saw people the way Jesus saw people? What if instead of seeing someone that hurt you or someone who deserves your retaliation, as, as someone that deserves your retaliation or deserves what's coming to them, what if instead you saw those people as someone who made a mistake just like you have made plenty of mistakes and that you are called to forgive them because you have been forgiven? What if we saw people the way Jesus saw people? What if instead of seeing someone that lives a lifestyle that you do not agree with as simply wrong and godless, what if instead you saw them as a child of God who needs love no matter whether you agree with them or not, just like you do, and the potential lifestyle that you could be living that God does not agree with? What if we saw people the way Jesus saw people? 
See, when Jesus sees this woman, he didn't see this woman as cursed. He saw her as a daughter of God, as, as someone deserving of healing. When Jesus saw tax collectors, when the world saw tax collectors as sinners, the worst of the worst, Jesus saw tax collectors as someone who could write one of the Gospels and be his disciple. When the world saw Paul as a murderous religious fanatic, Jesus saw him as a person who could plant more churches than anybody else, who could write most of the New Testament. It cannot make a difference if you do not first see people the way that Jesus sees people. First, you see. Then what do you do? Number two, you feel. The most common emotion attributed to Jesus is compassion. When you read the New Testament, you'll see this often. Jesus saw and had compassion. Most of our emotions are centered around us. It's, it's around us. We, we're happy, we're sad, or we're angry because something happened to us. That's not what compassion is. Compassion is I am happy or I'm sad or I'm angry because of something that happened to you. It doesn't actually affect me. That's what compassion is. See and have compassion. Erica and I, when we get into fights, which, again, we never do it. We're perfect married pastor couple, okay? We never do it. But when we do, one thing that we'll try to do at times, especially when it's a really heated fight, is we will try to do active listening. That's when you truly listen to what the other person is saying. And what we've done is what's helped us in the past is if I'm mad at her and she's mad at me, what we'll say is, okay, you know what? Can you explain to me why I'm upset? Explain to me, and I'll explain to you why I think you're upset. This does two things when you're, when you're married. First, it helps you understand why they're actually upset. A lot of times I'll explain it. She's like, that's not why I'm upset. You're not understanding it. And then, I'll, okay, you need to re-explain it so I can understand, number one. Number two, it gives me compassion, and it gives her compassion. Because now I'm putting myself in her shoes, and I'm understanding, oh, that's how she saw it. That's why she's upset. I'm putting myself in her shoes. I, I might not agree with it. I might think she, she did something. That she, she had wrong, wrong, uh, she, uh, I don't want to get in trouble, actually. I'm going to stop. I was getting ready. Like that. Yeah, yeah. I see you. Hi. Whew. Guys, I just saved. You wouldn't have seen me next week. We have compassion. If you have trouble having compassion for someone else, put yourself in their shoes. What would it be like? What would it be like to grow up the way they grew up? What would it be like to go through what they went through? What would it be like to be hurt the way that they were hurt? You cannot make a difference in someone's life if you do not see that person, whoever it is, and you cannot have compassion for them. You cannot make a difference if you do not see them, and then you have to have compassion, actually feel something for them. But it doesn't stop there. You can see, and you can feel, but it always has to end with you acting. See, feel, and act. What if Jesus saw this woman, had compassion for her, said, man, it stinks what you're going through, see ya, and just left. Didn't heal her. Now, it wouldn't have mattered at that point. You see you have to see them as someone that's valuable. You have to have compassion for who they are, for what they've gone through. But then you have to do something about it. Plenty of people feel bad for other people. Plenty of people want to make a difference. But you need to do something in order to make a difference. Here, there's this, um, this uh, uh, psych psychology theory that I learned about, social psychology theory this week. It's called the bystander effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but here's what it is. The idea is that the more people are around in a group, the less likely it is that anyone from that group will actually help. So they did an experiment. I watched this video on it. What they did with this experiment is they had all these different people, and they had a group of 10 people, and then a group of five people, and then a group of just one person. And for each one of these settings, they made it seem like they were all there just to um, look at a product and, and review a product. But what one person in each one of these groups didn't know is that everyone else was planted. Everyone else was, was active. So they did it with a bunch of people in groups of 10, a bunch of people in groups of five and a bunch of people in just by themselves. And what they would do is the person would come and say, here's what you're going to do, just fill out your paperwork. And they would try to set up this tent that they're going to review. And he purposely had trouble. 
He made it sure that it was like it was really hard. And everyone else that was in on it was told, don't do anything, just kind of watch it, whatever. And he's trying to set it up. And they wanted to see how long it would take for the one test subject of each one. Again, they did this multiple times. How long it would take for them to help. So a group of 10, the average it took was eight minutes and three seconds for them to help, for that one person to finally jump in and help. Some didn't help at all. The, te- the, the, the limit was 10 minutes, and they just gave up. A group of five, so there's one guy with five other people around, it took them seven minutes to help. Then when it was the person by themselves, it took them three minutes to help. Some helped in 20 seconds. Every single one of them eventually helped. Here's why this happens. What happens is you don't have bad intentions. None of them had bad intentions. In fact, they saw the person, and they felt bad for the person. They just assumed someone else would help. I'm in a group of 10. Somebody's going to jump in and do something about it. I don't have to be the person. And we see it happen at church all the time. I don't need to help. Someone else will help. I don't need to serve. Somebody else will serve. I don't need to give. Somebody else will give. I don't need to sacrifice. I don't need to step up. I don't need to do it. Somebody else will do it. You want to make a difference. You won't if you just see and feel. In fact, it's worse for you. When you just see and just feel and then don't act, that's worse. And this is how we at Impact Church make a difference. It's each one of us seeing those people that are in our path, seeing them, having compassion for them, and then doing something about it. We make a difference one person at a time. See, I refuse. I refuse to measure our success at Impact Church by how many people attend this church. I refuse to measure our success by how many people listen to the sermon or look back to sermons about how many likes we have on, on, on Facebook or Instagram or how much money is given. I refuse to measure it that way because I do not believe that is a measure of success of a church. I want to measure our success by how we as Impact Church, we impact people one person at a time. That's how I want to measure success. Now let me warn you, one person at a time takes longer. One person at a time is not the most efficient way to do it. One person at a time is harder. One person at a time takes, means you have to do a lot. But we are not called to make a difference for the kingdom of Impact Church. We're called to make a difference for His kingdom. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. That means that we represent Christ to a world that desperately needs hope, that desperately needs the grace that we have found. Why are we willing to take on this mission? Because it's the most important mission that we have. The people in our lives need to know about the God who can make a difference in every aspect of their life. This week, um, I was reading about a, uh, a hand surgeon named Dr. Paul, uh, Paul Brandt. Hand surgeon, and he, and he would go on mission trips uh, to India. And he talked about this, this one time he went to a mission trip, and he spoke at... Um, in front of this community, and he found out when he got there that um, it was a community of people struggling with leprosy. It was a bunch of people that, that were lepers in the room. And if you don't know about leprosy, what, what tends to happen is your, your hands start to get all messed up. Some just had stubs, some their fingers were lost. They have these hands that um, are, are all messed up. And this, this hand surgeon's talking to them. And while he's talking, he's noticing that they're hiding their hands, because that's what happens when you're wounded. A lot of times you're ashamed of what you're going through. So he hides their hands. And Jesus starts to talk, or uh, Paul Brand starts talking about this sermon about hands. He's like pointing out the thing that they're most ashamed about. He starts talking about Jesus' hands. And he says how he talks about Jesus' hands as a baby holding on to his 
his mother's hand or Jesus' hand as a carpenter who's probably rugged and doing hard work or Jesus' hand as the, as the physician who, who would heal those in need. And then he talked about Jesus' hands as the crucified Savior. And he talked about being a hand surgeon and nose. He said, when Jesus was crucified, the way they, they pierced his, his, his hands, it's most likely, it's almost impossible that it's not, but it's most likely that his hands became paralyzed because of it. Because the way they, that, that happens, there's really no way for your hands not to become paralyzed. Now all these people, all these lepers in the room that don't have hands are now hearing about a Savior who lost his hands as he was crucified. He talked about the message of grace and hope and how we are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But then he talked about the next set of hands of Jesus, and that's the resurrected hands of Jesus. And when Jesus is resurrected, his body is whole and he's alive again, but yet he had scars on his hands, on his side. And why would he have scars? He's a resurrected body. Why would he, he's fully regenerated. Why, why would he still have scars? Maybe it's because it was a visual reminder of the suffering that he went through for you and me. Maybe it's a visual reminder of the wounded physician and savior who has felt the pain that you have felt. Maybe it's a reminder of the Savior of the world who walked around with the scars that we gave him so that we can be in relationship with God. He finishes his sermon, and after he's done, he goes and sits down. The worship comes up during their closing song, and he watches as all these lepers who were first hiding their hands are now holding them up and surrendering, not ashamed of their wounds. This is what I want Impact Church to look like in the future. Not an all-done-up, perfect holy church full of perfect people who never mess up, who always put on our right face. That's not the church I want to be a pastor of. I want to be a church that we walk in authentically with whatever our wounds are and say, I surrender to you. That's the church that makes a difference. That is who we are called to be. You want to make a difference. Maybe you need to start by lifting up your scarred, deformed, wounded hands. Whatever it is, that you have and surrender it to the God who's already paid for it. Maybe you need to start by fully surrendering to the God who has a purpose for you, who has a plan for you, who has a mission for you, who has people in your lives right now in front of you that you can make a difference with. Maybe you need to start with raising the scars to the God who's also scarred because of us. Let's pray. Dear God, today... We thank you for the privilege that we have to still be here. The privilege that we have to continue to serve you through this mission. God, thank you that you are the God who saves us and redeems us. That we can show up with our wounds and our scars and surrender them to you because we know you've already paid for it. You know what we were going through and that you have a plan for us. It just takes us surrendering to you. God, as we get ready for the next five years of this church, pray that you help us to remember what our mission is. It's to make a difference to the people that you are putting right in front of us. Not so that we as a church can grow, but so that more people can get to know you. The wounded Savior who saved us. And thank you for the responsibility and privilege that you have given us as this church. Help us to live out the mission as we go forward. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand and sing this song together.